Now this, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you all. In them, I am trying to arouse your genuine understanding by reminding you all that you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy women and men who prophesied and the commandment of the Redeemer and Savior spoken through your apostles. First of all, know this, that in the last days will come scoffers scoffing and chasing after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, everything continues as from the beginning of creation. But this one thing do not ignore, beloved, that with the Most High, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Most High is not slow about God's promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you all not wanting anyone to perish, rather all to come to repentance. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. Now today we are dwelling in this passage from Second uh, Peter, and it's, it's got some great language in here scoffers scoffing, Um, the days of eternity like a blink of an eye, one day is like a thousand years. We have a lot of this poetic understanding of the full scope of history, but the instruction here to the people of God is to remember, 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 remember what was said, Remember the promises of God. Remember that God is here with you. It is disorienting to live in a world with so much hurt and to be loved by a God of so much love. We look around and say, how can we be loved when there is so much pain in the world? Those of us who are subject to the harms of collective trauma, those of us who are wrapped up in the perpetration of collective trauma, those of us, all of us, in bodies carrying generational trauma, those of us trying to live lives of joy and hope and justice in finite bodies with limitations that we can't always accept. But the call here is to live simultaneously in the joy, the promise, the fight, the urgency of now, and in the scope of eternity with God, because God is patient. The text says that God is not slow, God is patient. Now the scoffers say God is slow. The scoffers say, where is your God? The scoffers say, what has gotten better? And I have to admit, a lot of times, I'm kind of a scoffer. (laughs) Am I alone? I look around, I'm like, what are you even doing, God? What are we even doing? What are our movements even doing? Have I even healed at all? And I bet a lot of us have some internal scoffing. And, and this letter is not, is not supposed to cause shame about all of that, but to say, hey, listen, there's going to be some scoffing. What you say to the scoffers, what you say to yourself, is remember, remember, remember eternity. 
Now, that can be really hard for us to do. We are not eternal beings. We are finite beings called to remember eternity. And that's like maybe impossible. But we are also promised that we have a stake in eternity, right? That this life is not everything, that everything is everything, and at some level that is beyond our comprehension. We are a part of the eternity of everything. So we are called to remember not only God's faithfulness and God's promises, but specifically that God promises that we are a part of a larger story than the scope of our own lives. And that can be really hard to do. It's actually a skill. It's a skill we cultivate. We can call it trust because it is about a depth of relationship we have to God and to creation and to ourselves, a trust that we are part of something larger. But it is a skill. It's not something that you either have or don't have. Trust is something built and cultivated in relationship. And part of the spiritual path is developing a trust with yourself, with God, and with this broken, messy creation to trust that we are a part of an eternal story of healing and transformation, no matter the feelings and experiences very real of crisis and pain right here, right now. As some of you know, Cameron and I have a toddler. She's amazing. I'm a really big fan. I'm a really big fan. She's two, and she yells a lot. Now, she's just like a big, expressive, energetic person, right? And I think these things about her are so incredible. And when she's feeling something, she communicates it. And when that's delight, it's this wild, infectious giggle. And when it's frustration, it is screeches and screaming and yelling. She feels frustration a lot. She feels overwhelmed a lot because she's two. So she experiences a lot of urgency, even panic in her body. And a lot of times, it's about things that I think of as simple, right? She's she's all of a sudden very urgently screaming to me because she's dropped something and she can't reach it. She's all of a sudden on 11 because she's realized that she's hungry. And sometimes I say to her, do you remember that I fed you last time? And she looks at me blankly and screams again. Because the answer is obviously, no, Baba, I don't remember that. I am hungry now. She has an urgency to her hunger, an urgency to her need. Her needs are real. She's not making it up. But she has no scope of history. She has literally not the skills or the neurological ability to put that into perspective, to remember that I fed her last time, that we are always there providing for her, that we can be counted on, her dad and I. And this happens around things like water or food or pain or surprise. And it overwhelms her system. It is a skill for her to remember that we are there with her, taking care of her. And it's a skill she hasn't really developed yet. It's a skill we're working on. And ultimately, though on the surface, the thing that she feels is panic or hunger or pain or frustration... Underneath all of that, the root terror inside of her is that she may look up one day and we may be gone forever. 
It's a fundamental human need to have someone there to care for you when you are little. As adults in this life, we can care for ourselves most of the time, most of us, when it comes to drinking water or eating food or getting ourselves to a safe place. But those otherwise seemingly simple things are not available to small children without the help of an adult. And so, though in the moment there is this fear, I will go hungry, I will be in pain forever, I'm so thirsty, I'm so mad, underneath that is the question, am I alone in this? Or is there someone who will take care of me, who will love me through this moment? And that underlying fear, if you leave me, no one will be here to take care of me. That is a survival instinct. It is a part of who we are. And so we grow up into adulthood, taking care of our basic needs. But that core feeling, will I be alone in this, is still a fundamental question. We are built to be with one another. And ultimately, the longing that we have for care, provision, connection, that we hopefully receive from the adults around us when we are little, over time, that needs to shift to a connection to the self and to God, to God who is with us, God who is with us always. Now, the ask on the surface is, Baba, fix this. But the ask underneath is, Baba, be with me. So I love that adaptation of the song that we just sang by Coldplay, right? Like some of you may have pieced it together, maybe not. The original lyrics are, I will try to fix you. And that's a very human response. But the shift, the divine perspective is, I will be there with you. I will be there with you. And that is the ultimate promise. And that is actually what we are all ultimately longing for. But it is a skill to remember that God is with us, just as it is a skill for my toddler to remember that I will be there with her. And it is something that we struggle with as a people. Now, we're not new. We did not invent this struggle. The history of the people of God is a telling of this story over and over again. I remember... Um, when I was in a, a Hebrew Bible studies class. And I was kind of intimidated, I'll be honest, by the Pentateuch, the first five books. I was like, man, there's so much in here. It feels so different from so many other parts of the Bible. Like, I don't know how to make sense of these like layers and layers of stories that seem to be about people just like doing extremely like questionable moral things and like what, and God's like, yeah. So I was, I was holding it all together being like, what? What is this set of stories? And Ralph Klein, one of my professors, offered up this interpretation that the central theme of the Pentateuch, of that part of the scriptures, is that the people forget and our God remembers. It is a story over and over again of individuals, of communities, of societies, of creation forgetting God's promises, forgetting God's goodness, forgetting that God is with them, forgetting the covenant, the relationship that they have together, feeling abandoned and acting like they've been abandoned. And God always remembering, always inviting them back to remembering 
I am with you. We are together in this. We can be on the road towards healing. Now, over the book of Exodus, we have a bunch of really stunning examples of the people forgetting. So, starts out, people are in a bad situation, right? The people of God, the Israelites, have been enslaved by Moses and the powers, the, the empire of Egypt. And so they're in a really bad way. Now God comes to intervene directly into history, recruits Moses into this project, uh, recruits a bunch of midwives into this project, right? God's there and with them throughout all of it. And then this big moment comes, the plagues, this very, very dramatic, not going to miss it. You're not going to like, you know, have slept through it and be like, wait, what happened? Like this, like, like defining plot experience. God is intervening to free God's people, right? And so after the plagues, the people leave, they escape. Um, they're, they're headed out, and Pharaoh and the armies decide to go chase after them. Now God has just done this really dramatic thing, and the people say to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You took us away to die in the desert? They're going to come kill us. What have you done to us? And they're so upset, as though they don't remember that God just did this big, explosive, like cinematic thing to help free them. And so Moses is like, chill out, guys. God's with us. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So then God's like, yeah, dude, I'm totally with you. Here, like, keep going. I will part the seas for you. You want a miracle? Here you go. Walk through the water right? Another big cinematic moment. Maybe God's being like, hey, maybe if I'm flashy enough, you'll, you'll remember. They get to the other side. They get to the other side. They're in the desert. They get hungry. They get hangry. <laughs> they start grumbling. Oh, how I wish that the Lord had just put us to death while we were in Egypt. <laughs> there, we could sit by pots of cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. At least we were, we were fed, right? Now we are going to starve in the desert. God's like, okay. <laughs> I invite you to start paying attention to the weather. It will be raining bread. <laughs> so God rains bread, manna, and is like, hey, there's going to be enough every day. You don't, you know, I got you. So what do they do? They immediately start hoarding it because they're like, we're never going to get bread again. So God's like, hey, stop hoarding it, please. It's coming every day. In fact, you don't, have, like, you don't even have to collect on the Sabbath because there'll be double the day before that. So they're like, cool, cool, cool. Let's hoard on the Sabbath, right? And God's like, oh my gosh, stop it. I keep giving you enough. I made it rain bread. What do you want from me? Then several chapters later, in Exodus. They've been in the desert. God's been raining bread, making water out of stones, like lots of big flashy miracles, trying to get and keep your attention, people of God. So now they're, they're like enough of a tribe that they've got to, they've got to get some rules. They've got to get some culture. And so God invites Moses up the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the law. 
And like, again, big, cinematic, right? So like there's the mountain, and then there's like fire on the mountain. There's a big cloud on the mountain. It's like Moses go up into the cloud. Seventy elders are seeing God and dining with God. All the people see the light show, right? And so the scriptures are like, they see God. Great. So Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And over the course of 40 days and 40 nights, the people are like, yeah, I don't know what happened to that Moses guy. Um, he's probably dead or whatever. So, uh, Aaron, why don't you, like, make us some new gods? Because obviously the God, the God that we were following before, like, I don't know what happened to that guy. Um, but it's been a couple weeks <laughs> since we saw that light show, so why don't we make a new God? And so that's where the story of the golden calf comes, down, comes in. Just like 40 days. He was gone for 40 days after all of these miracles. Moses comes down from the mountain and sees what's going on. And like t the tablets that he's been working on with God for weeks, he like throws them to the ground. He's so mad. They shatter. He has to go up and do it again. <laughs> but he's so mad because he's like, guys, focus. Do you remember the God who is with you? And the answer is, no, they genuinely don't, Moses. They genuinely don't. And it can seem so silly when we look at it from this bird's eye view, right? When we're like, people, do you remember two weeks ago, five minutes ago, when God was there for you? Micah, do you remember this morning when I fed you when you were hungry last? But it is a skill. It is a practice of remembering relationship. It is an investment of trust to choose to remember when God was there with you last and when you will feel God's presence again, knowing that God is continuously with you throughout that, whether you feel it or not. That is a set of choices. It is a skill. It is a practice that we cultivate. Now, in this story, Moses is pretty practiced at it. But Moses also has the biggest, you know, role in participating with God. Aaron was the second most practiced at it, and he also forgot within 40 days, right? He was Moses's, you know, right hand. He was deeply involved. But when the people started panicking over those 40 days, he was like, yeah, you know what? I, I get it. I get it. Like, we, we need to quell this panic. We're going to, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. But the fix is to create a finite earthly intervention that doesn't actually fix it. It just distracts the people. It's not enough. What is that golden calf going to do for them 40 days from now? So instead of rushing in to fix it, God has the patient view that says, hey, actually, we need to grow and heal. We need this community to be transformed. I'm going to give you some guidelines. They're not a quick fix either. Now, they're designed to help keep you safe. One of the first ones, don't murder each other, right? Like some guidelines, some boundaries, they're helpful, right? But we have to, we have to be working on healing at an eternal level while we are working on healing on Tuesday, and if we are only thinking about this week and the next week, we are going to go from fix to fix to fix, forgetting our eternal inheritance, forgetting God's eternal plan for transformation. 
God is not slow to intervene. God is patient enough to work on true healing, not giving us misdirects and band-aids, even though that's what we are begging for. The people say, God, give us a king. God, give us a king. God's like, monarchy isn't it, guys. They're like, give us a king. Give us a king. He's, God's like, okay, have a king, but we still need to work on this because that's not going to fix it. Then they have kings, and they're like, ooh, kings. Ooh. <laughs> we decided we're not into that. <laughs> it's not working for us. God's like, it's not that one coming, but like, you know, we're in this together. God has an eye, a patient eye towards eternity. And God is asking us to cultivate our orientation towards eternity as well. Now, in our highly individualist culture, individual survival is the most important. Individual well-being takes highest priority. But we see immediately how challenging this eternal perspective gets when we take a deeper look at the Hebrew Scriptures. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is considerably less focus on individuals, on individual morality, individual failings, opportunities, success, or survival. Instead of individual, the Hebrew scriptures are all oriented towards collective accountability, collective morality, collective healing. And so when God is making promises to God's people, God isn't saying, hey, Abraham, I got you. You're going to have a good life. God is saying, hey, Abraham, you are going to have more descendants than there are stars, than there are grains of sand on the beach. Okay, I am going to give you a people. I will care for and love your people. You are a part, a small part. You are a, a grain of sand on the beach, and you are a part of this thing that I will protect, that I will cultivate, that will go on for generations. You are my people. You are a part of my people. And so God doesn't guarantee anyone's survival. God guarantees a remnant. God says, I will save a piece of this always. Nothing can destroy us completely. We are on a journey of eternity towards healing. This is what it means when we say that everyone who wants to save their life will lose it. That everyone who wants to save their life needs to lay it down. We need to divest ourselves at least a little bit from what happens in this moment or even to this body because we are a part of an eternal liberation, an eternal salvation, an eternal project of redemption. The letter in 2 Peter explains that God is not slow, but God is patient because God will leave no one behind. And that is the irony because we are living these finite lives, because we cannot place ourselves in eternity, we think that our finite lives are all of us. But we have a stake in eternity, and across eternity, God will leave no one behind. So no matter what happens to you in this lifetime, God will not let anyone truly perish. And God is patient enough to give everyone an eternity for redemption. 
We don't know what eternity is like. Our scope is so limited. We have a toddler's view on nourishment. But we are a part of something eternal. And God says, this moment, it might be disaster. But I promise, I will not leave one of you behind. This lifetime, it may not go great. But eternally, you will be a part of the redemption of all things. And we will not abandon a single grain of sand. Redemption, true redemption. Liberation, true liberation. Salvation, true salvation is eternal. And we don't have the scope of that. But that is why we must practice trust that is why we keep forgetting and we are called to remember and remember and remember that God is always with us, that God will protect us as a part of eternity, that there is some part we play through eternity that we can't comprehend in these finite bodies, in these finite minds. But we are called to remember. Everything is in crisis. But God, our parent God, has an eternal perspective. God is thinking about eternity even as God is thinking about the scrape on our knee or that moment of panic when we can't see God. God is thinking about us right now and forever. When Micah wants me to give her food right away, I, I will if I can. I will if it's right. I will, but I will always be there with her. And I am thinking about the nourishment that she needs to grow into adulthood. And it might not be a fifth cookie. <laughs> but there are always there are always going to be things that she doesn't understand about the way that I take care of her. And there are going to be moments of real pain, real suffering, that are tied to a circumstance that is beyond my control as a parent or is a part of something larger, investment in her healing, right? So things like she got a splinter in her foot, little baby foot with a splinter in it, and it, and it hurts, Right? I, there was no reason for her to get that splinter. It was just a bad thing that happened. And she's in pain. She doesn't want me to touch it. But here I am holding her foot still while her dad digs in there with little tweezers. And it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And she doesn't want that because she can't. She cannot comprehend beyond that moment of pain. But we want her foot to heal right? We want her to heal, and we are more invested in her healing because if we don't deal with this, there will be an infection. And when we think of the scope of eternity, our lives may involve the pain of healing, the pain of intervention. It may even be the pain of that initial wound, the splinter, or the pain of the radiating heat as our body tries to heal it in our personal lives, in our bodies, in our communities, in our societies. There is generational and ongoing wounding and pain, and the work of healing is not a quick fix. The work of healing is not going to immediately make it feel better. It's probably going to immediately feel worse. And that worse may last our lifetime. 
Those of us who are committed to liberation and justice for all know that most of what we fight for, we will not see before we die. But we do so because we believe in a generational promise of liberation. That if we can face the generational reality of trauma, and we can remember the generational promises of God's love and connection and fidelity, then we can invest ourselves in generational liberation. It may not be in my lifetime or the lifetime of my child, but generations from now, somewhere down the beach, there is a joy and freedom that I have a part of, not only as an ancestor that I can be proud of, but also somehow beyond my comprehension, the eternity that God promises me is that I will also experience that liberation that comes generations and generations and generations from now. And so we are invited not to be slow, but to be patient. We are invited to intervene every day with power and passion and perspective, to say we fight for what is right. This is where King comes in saying the arc, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, King also wrote a whole book called Why We Can't Wait. Right? So we are not here just waiting around. We are active. We are participating. But we are unwedded to the outcomes in our lifetime because we are so sure of the liberation of eternity. And this is how we face the cross. Not knowing if we will see resurrection in our lifetime, but with a confidence that we will see it in eternity and that it is ours that we will experience it, even if that experience is beyond our comprehension. We are called to be a people of eternity. We are called to participate in this life every day like it matters because it does. But we are called to claim the victory of eternity and embrace the patience of God. We are also called to remember that every step, every moment of eternity, God is here with us. God is never not at work. God is always, always in the process of redemption and bringing us into wholeness. Because this is the fear, right? That someday God will abandon us to our flaws. That someday we will find ourselves alone in the morass, unable to change it. That someday the powers of evil and violence in this world, in our relationships, in our own bodies will overtake us and will be swallowed up into it. But the promises of God is that that will never happen. That will never happen. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how overwhelming the crisis feels, God is there with you. God is at work. Eternity is long. And we will get through this together. We are in it together. And so, like a toddler who cannot remember the last time they felt fed, who cannot remember the last time they felt held or calm, we need to cultivate a trust. We need to practice remembering with one another. We will get through this. We will get through it together. We will get through it with the love of our God. We will see God again. We saw them just a moment ago, even though it feels like a thousand years. We will see God again. We are a part of God's eternity. We are never abandoned. We are always loved and held.
Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we long for shortcuts. We long for fixes. God, intervene here, now, immediately. And God, help us to invest ourselves in the long, slow work of healing and redemption. God, let us be as committed as you are to true healing. Let us leave no one behind. Let us be patient enough for every grain of sand to be reunited in love. God, be with us through our lifetimes and anchor us in eternity. May your healing characterize our lives for generations and generations and generations to come. God, we trust in your promises. Help us to trust. Amen.